Mike is uh, going to be carrying on the short sermon series, just three, uh, three Sundays we're doing in 3 John. This is the second uh, of them, and uh, David is going to read from 3 John for us now. So we revisit the third letter of John. You can find that on page 1230. The Elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men, so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I find it a wonderful encouragement that we have the assurance that God the Father has spoken to us uh, through his word, through the prophets, uh, through the apostles, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through that record of his words and his life and his death and uh, his resurrection, and that the Lord is still speaking us to us today. Uh, through his Holy Spirit. So we're going to stand and, and sing those uh, about that sort of truth and that dynamic now before Mike comes to speak. So let's stand. As we stand, shall we pray? Lord Jesus, you are the only head of your church, and we love the fact that you are first. Lord, please make that which we love in our hearts true in our lives, in our congregation, in this earth, as we long for your coming kingdom, and that by your Holy Spirit, your word would work in us that which is pleasing to you 
for we ask it to your Father's glory. Amen. I do please be seated and uh, come with me to uh, this uh, shortest book of the Bible, uh, the third letter of the Apostle John. The New Testament has some pretty awful people in it. Um, I wonder uh, which is your favourite, or should that be your least favourite, of the worst people in the New Testament. Uh, I guess many people's lists would have Judas Iscariot at the top or the bottom, whichever way you're doing uh, the list, the one who betrayed the Lord himself for love of money. The scribes and Pharisees come in for regular denunciation. The Sanhedrin that conspires to put the Lord Jesus to death and do everything in their power to intimidate the apostles that they might try and stop them preaching Christ after he has died and risen. Pontius Pilate, hardly a glowing example of a principled politician. Heretics, traitors, deserters are periodically mentioned, especially by Paul in his letters for their tragic and wicked work. What a sad thing uh, that Demas, for example, to be recorded forever in God's word and throughout history as the one who Paul writes has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica because he loved this world. What an awful anti-testimony. But of all the awful people in the New Testament, uh, one that I especially dread is Diotrephes. Uh, All we know about him comes from uh, verses 9 and 10 of 3 John. But it is a sufficiently recognizable portrait to send a shiver down the spine of anyone who serves as a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. Or at least it ought to do so. If it doesn't, and you have a leadership role in this church, ask the Lord to cause you some shivering. Because as we contemplate this man, that really ought to be the result. Because Diotrephes, you see, is not a traitor like Judas. He's not a deserter like Demas. He's not a heretic like those mentioned in the second letter who think their new and improved gospel that looks remarkably like the surrounding culture uh, and in fact has only taken them away from God, although there have been several bishops in the news uh, this week who fit into that category, Diotrephes is not one of those either. Now, the Reverend Mr. Diotrephes is not yet any of those things, although he is almost certainly on a journey that will take him in that direction. But not yet. He doesn't even deny the Lord like Peter does before his restoration. As far as we can tell, and we only have these two verses to go on in this letter, Diotrephes was an Orthodox Church leader. If the apostles had written the creed that bears their name and accurately distills their teaching, he would have said it without reservation. He wasn't an adulterer or a traitor or a deserter or a heretic. If you could have downloaded his sermons from the church website, you would have thought them perfectly adequate and quite sound. And yet here he is, denounced by an apostle of Christ like Judas or Demas, an apostolic condemnation is his only enduring legacy. He may have come to repentance, of course, and we'll find out in glory. But as we meet him here, for all his apparent orthodoxy, his soul is in grave danger. 
So as we uh, meet this morning and uh, consider uh, this brief thumbnail sketch of him and his interaction with Gaius and John, three questions to ask. Uh, Firstly, what was his sin? Uh, Second, who did it affect? And third, how do we avoid it? Because we do not want to share his fate. First, then, what was his sin? Uh, In English, it takes several words, but there's just one Greek word that underlies them. Diotrephes loves to be first. He loves to be first. In verse 9, John tells us that he has written to the church, that is, uh, the local congregation in which his friend Gaius was a member, uh, and Diotrephes was the one who received the letter. That's how we know that Diotrephes was the leader. Uh, We might say, anachronistically, Diotrephes was the vicar of the church to which Gaius belonged, and he's the one, therefore, who receives the letter that John writes. It's the same today. If someone is going to write to our church, uh, then they generally write to me. So my inbox, uh, whether physical or electronic, uh, can be quite a crowded place. And it's not all because people want to talk to me. It's because people want to communicate with us as a church. Diotrephes gets this letter for that reason. So Diotrephes, it seems, or gets a letter from John for that reason. Uh, so Diotrephes, it seems, has a legitimate authority within Gaius' church. And the New Testament is everywhere clear that churches are not meant to be leaderless collectives. But rather, as Paul says to the elders of Ephesus, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Ultimately, leaders in God's church are appointed by the Holy Spirit, Paul says, and therefore they're part of God's good ordering of congregations. Overseers, shepherds, these are words which indicate a real authority, a Holy Spirit-given leadership of a local church entrusted to reliable men who will faithfully teach the word of God and so pastor the people of God. And that principle is not just true of the overall uh, leadership of the church. I had a lovely meeting uh, with the Ladies' Fellowship uh, this week in our own congregation, uh, and we sought the Lord's will together uh, to fill the vacuum left by the godly and very effective leadership of our dear sister, Helen Rickson, who went home to glory a few months ago. And as of this week, uh, Tina, Mary and Irene will lead that group. Uh, No organization can function without leadership. The church in that sense is no different. And I'm grateful to God that he has prompted us and them uh, to take on those roles. I want to say uh, that the Holy Spirit has made them leaders of that particular group within our church. Leaders in every ministry of the local church are God's gift. That those ministries may flourish and function well and be fruitful and harmonious and bring glory to Jesus. So again, we see John pointing obliquely to what we spent time on earlier this term, the way that the Lord calls all of his people to serve, and many of us serve by exercising roles of leadership. So I say all that by way of background. You see, there's nothing wrong in principle with Diotrephes having a position of overall leadership within Gaius' church. The Holy Spirit has made him an elder. But there is everything wrong with Diotrephes' attitude, his heart, uh, towards his position. Again, just notice that phrase. He loves to be first. 
He delights in the power and prestige of his position. He's a man filled with pride. He is number one and no one, not even an apostle of Jesus Christ, still less annoying church members who will not succumb to his bullying ways. No one will be allowed to stand in the way of his preeminence. He loves to be first. And in scripture, this is the mindset of all human rebellion. Why did Adam and Eve fall in the garden where it all went wrong right back in the beginning? Because they believed Satan's promise. They would be like God. They would be number one. And God's curse was their reward. Or listen to the language of Isaiah denouncing Babylon. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. How our sinful hearts love to be first, to be preeminent, to be the ones who call the shots. Think above all about Jesus' words to the clergy of his own day. How often they come in for his withering criticism, uh, precisely because they love to be first. Listen to what he says uh, in Mark 12. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues. The places of honor at banquets, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Do you remember how the disciples themselves are recorded on various occasions, jostling for position? Which one of them is going to be the arch apostle and sit at the right and left hand of the Lord in glory? Jesus' response to them was this. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. High officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Indeed, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? As we come back to Diotrephes. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think we get the point, don't we? Uh, Of course we need leaders in the church, but they will only be Christian leaders if they exercise that leadership in the name and after the character and pattern of the Lord Jesus himself. Worldly leadership loves to be first. And exults proudly in the power one has gained over others. Godly leadership is exercised in serving the people for whom one has responsibility. And doing so with the fear of God and the love of Christ. I love the story of Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. So conscious was he of his own unworthiness that he resisted for some lengthy period a call to ordained ministry. He had to begin to avoid certain towns uh, where he was afraid that the crowds would pressure the local bishop uh, into ordaining him. Uh, Such was the groundswell of opinion that we must have Augustine as our leader. And then one day in 391 uh, AD, he risked 
responding to the request of a friend who was anxious, uh, uh, who'd asked him to come into the city of Hippo uh, to pray with him. He, he snuck in, he thought quietly, but he was spotted by the crowd. They grabbed him and they compelled the bishop to ordain him there and then. Uh, the Church of England has a slightly more orderly uh, way of doing these things. You understand such things would not be allowed to happen today. Woe betide the Spirit acting with such conviction. But there we go. Uh, it is perhaps an extreme example, but it illustrates, you see, exactly the contrary spirit to that which was in Diotrephes, and which so naturally arises in my and every sinful human heart. Augustine was terrified of being first. So conscious was he of his own unworthiness and of the awesome responsibility. But thank God for the crowd, because they gave us one of the best bishops in all 2,000 years of church history. Closer to home, the spirit of Diotrephes, though, is alive and well. I'm sure we've all experienced it, although I'm loath to give even general examples, lest any of you feel some sort of unjust accusation. But just think of the ways... Uh, uh, about, uh, and you've probably sadly experienced this, into which clergy fail like this. I can be rude about clergy, can't I? Uh, Because I'm one of them. Uh, Think of the vicar uh, who just will not admit that he's made a mistake or who won't allow someone who's transparently more gifted than he is to exercise a ministry for fear of being compared compared unfavorably uh, with that person. Think, uh, and this is a besetting sin amongst clergy, uh, of those who are so obsessed with success relative to their peers or their predecessor. And they're so concerned to compare themselves uh, with each other uh, that they fall into great insecurity and deep misery. Focused on outdoing fellow sinners more than on the gracious glory of the Redeemer is no way to exercise Christian ministry. So, friends, let me be open, let me be clear, let me be personal. If you see the spirit of Diotrephes in me, then please will you be kind enough to point it out to me? If I have some repenting to do, well, then you're the people that God has given me to help me do that. But as the Lord Jesus taught us in his great Sermon on the Mount, have a look for the speck of dust in your own eye first. Diotrephes' sin was to exalt himself, and he was not the last person in church history to do it, because it is in principle the sin that captures all of our hearts and describes our natural state. We all need to heed Jesus' searching words, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Second, how did Diotrephes' sin manifest itself? Who did it? Effect. Having seen the defining feature of Diotrephes' deformed ministry, we now see something of its contours. And now let me just reread these two verses, 9 and 10. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Well, here we see the fruit, the poisonous fruit. For the love and exaltation of the self is the destruction of fellowship with God in the vertical direction and with his people in the horizontal plane. 
in the vertical direction, as it were, he will not recognize John the Apostle as his legitimate overseer. And in the horizontal, he will reject those who refuse to acknowledge his arrogant boasts. Consider then the horizontal first. Paul says to the Galatians, establishing the principle for all of Jesus' apostles, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. See, when Diotrephes says he wants nothing to do with John, he's getting dangerously close to saying he wants nothing to do with Jesus, for whom John is merely an apostle. Indeed, it seems to me quite plain that the cancer that is destroying the Church of England from within is exactly of this character. Any form of Christianity that places human reason or church tradition or personal experience over scriptural authority is an exaltation of man over Christ. Diotrephes may not yet have been a heretic, but to love to be first over and against an apostle makes it almost inevitable that that is the trajectory he's on. We might make the point more generally, uh, because it does seem that John uh, not only was an apostle, but he was functioning, we might say, as a bishop, uh, exercising oversight over a group of churches, including the one in which Gaius was a member and Diotrephes was the senior minister. Oh, we're Anglicans. Most of us are. You're in an Anglican church, if you didn't realize it. Uh, I I certainly am one by conviction, although we welcome everybody here, whatever your own uh, convictions uh, or background. And that means that my conviction is that the highest authority, humanly speaking, is not me or our parish. As ministers, when we're ordained, we swear an oath of obedience to our bishop. I do think, especially in these troubled times, that we need to take that incredibly seriously. Too often larger churches or ministers of larger churches or ministers generally, given the chaos that is in the wider Church of England scene, are led into a heart desire to go independent and really to place themselves at the top of the tree. Where such wider leadership is orthodox, as it is in our Bishop Mark, we need to be the first in demonstrating humility. And that way we will... Uh, seek to avoid the sin of Diotrephes. Our former rector in my training parish was uh, renowned uh, for his powerful biblical preaching, his kind pastoral care, and the conviction that he was the ultimate authority, uh, and not the bishop, and not the archdeacon, and not anyone else. Uh, When the uh, diocese sent him a letter asking for an accounting of his funeral and wedding fees, he sent it back unfilled uh, with the words in red, in capital letters, none of your business written across it. Uh, On another occasion, a woman had rung him up to complain about some matter. Uh, Unsatisfied with the explanation, uh, the woman exclaimed, you're behaving like the Pope. Uh, His response, madam, in this parish, I am the Pope. Now, I didn't know him. And perhaps those anecdotes were not a true reflection or had another side uh, to them. But how easily they could be true, because we recognize the character, don't we? How easily we love to be first and to see ourselves as the final authority. Oh, friends, it is not to be that way. Transparency and accountability, humility before the word of God and those who the Lord has placed over us in the good ordering of his church, all of these 
are good ways to counter the love to be first. Let's turn to the horizontal. Diotrephes not only wanted nothing to do with John, he gossiped maliciously about the apostle in his absence. It's a common enough strategy in the world, isn't it? Just look at the election campaigns in any Western democracy every time we're heading towards another cycle. In order to establish myself, I must do down my opponents. And we'll do it cleverly and carefully. We don't want to give work for the libel lawyers, but we all know what's really going on. I will establish my case by destroying my opponent. It's not the Christian way. That's what we see here in Diotrephes. A love of self is always, almost always, marked by a verbal destruction of others in order to establish my superiority over you. Then we see Diotrephes' next power play. He refuses to welcome the brothers himself and even throws out of his congregation those who want to do so. What a horrible bully boy he is. And I have to say that if I hadn't actually seen such behavior, sadly, over nearly 30 years in Christian ministry, I would struggle to believe it could possibly occur in a church, let alone be led by the minister. But it can happen. It does happen quite why Diotrephes reacts so violently towards the visiting missionaries, John doesn't make explicit. We saw last time that John encourages his beloved friend to welcome these brothers, and Gaius bravely does so, in spite of his minister's threats towards him. What is clear is that uh, Diotrephes' church-destroying and missionary-discouraging behavior all flows out of his fundamental sin, his love of the first place. As he exalts himself, so everyone else must pay the price. I suspect, and this is just a guess, that Diotrephes knew that these missionary brothers, if they actually came to his congregation, would be such humble and godly men that their genuineness would expose his hypocrisy and arrogance. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. Uh, Sometimes you meet a brother or sister in Christ who just seems to radiate holiness and integrity and grace. And you're convicted just by being in their presence. Or maybe I'm just much more wicked than the rest of you. That experience, though, we can turn away from it, can't we, as we try and justify our own hearts. Or we can let the Lord convict us and lead us on. In repentance. Now, we saw last time that these brothers who were visiting uh, were men of faith and integrity and courage who loved to proclaim the name of Christ where it was not yet known. Diotrephes doesn't want men like that in his church. They would show his little empire up and his ungodly pretense far too quickly. But here is something revealing. Just, as, uh, just contrast Gaius and Diotrephes for a moment. Uh, Do you remember last time uh, John told Gaius, verse 2, that his soul was getting along well? Now, how did John know that? Well, the evidence for it was his love for the brothers, verse 5. He was walking in truth. Uh, John rejoiced in that. And you could see it because he was living in love. Those two things must always go together. And the one is the evidence of the other. Well, now consider Diotrephes, all is very much not well with his soul. And what is the outward evidence of his pride-filled heart? Well, it is slander and hatred towards others. Those who reject the truth also reject love. 
And we need to heed James's warning. Uh, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The Atrophies talked the talk, but the true state of his soul was demonstrated by his slanderous words and his hateful behavior. His denial of the truth in his heart, if not yet in his words, led to the very opposite of love. Also third, and very briefly, how do we avoid ending up like Diotrephes? Part of the answer is just opening ourselves to criticism. John says in a model of firm gentleness, if I come I will call attention to what he is doing. He won't respond with tit-for-tat bully tactics, but there would be an honest and public drawing of attention to Diotrephes' public sin, presumably done in the hope of the proud minister's repentance and a restoration of fellowship. Diotrephes would only be restored if he accepted the rebuke. And likewise for us, an openness to correction and rebuke from God's word is a sure mark of a humble spirit and a growing work of God in our souls. So when you read your Bible or listen to a sermon or engage in a house group study, will you ask the Lord to correct you as well as to teach you? to rebuke you as well as to train you in righteousness. We are all works in progress, and the Lord has much work to do in my soul and in every honest soul. Positively, as we shall see next time, God willing, find and then be a good example of consistent faith. His words and deeds coincide, but that's for next time. And more generally, the needful undoing of pride is the right perception of sin and the magnifying of grace. What Christian, let alone what Christian preacher, can honestly look at the awfulness of their own heart and then consider that they're worthy of preeminence within the church? If you knew what I was really like, you probably wouldn't listen to me. But then, if I knew what you were really like, I probably wouldn't bother standing in the pulpit and preaching. For all of us, it's grace, grace, grace. We have nothing to be proud of and everything to be grateful for. As we used to say in the old prayer book, we modernized this confession for this morning's service, there is no health in us. That's the true account of where we are spiritually. How can we love to be first when we come as dependent, broken sinners to the throne of grace? There is no health in us, but thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. You can't pray like that and then love to be first. You can't be honest about your own sin at the same time as exalting yourself. And the wonder of grace showed to such awful sinners as me and you should keep our eyes trained on the magnificent mercy of our Saviour. It is a miracle of grace that any of us will be saved. A miracle that pulls the rug from all those comparisons we make amongst ourselves. All our jockeying for position. All our loving to be first. Now if the Lord calls you into leadership, and he has called a great number of us here to different leadership ministries in the church. Indeed my prayer and longing is that the Lord will raise up many more women and men as leaders within the different ministries and new ministries of our church. But as he does so, then remember that you'll never move from where you started. A miserable sinner rescued only by the grace and blood of Jesus. 
You cannot love to be first and cry from your heart, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. As the Lord Jesus taught his disciples, and I was reflecting on this week in my own quiet time, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So let us not love to be first, but rather unite in loving the one that God has made first, even Jesus Christ our Saviour and Lord, and as we humble ourselves before him now and every day of our earthly pilgrimage. So the day will come, friends, when he will exalt us, lift us up to his kingdom. And so in his kindness, may the Lord banish the hypocritical spectre of Diotrephes in this church, in my heart, in all of our hearts. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would have mercy on us as sinners. We pray that you would so cause us by your spirit to humble ourselves that in due course we might be lifted up. And Lord, those of us you call to exercise leadership, please help us to do it in the spirit and manner of your son that he alone may gain all the glory. Lord, make our only love be that he is first. Amen.